welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Dr. Hoda Mustafa is a physician and teaches scientific thinking and co-developed a course on creative thinking and problem solving. Today, we're going to explore a little bit more on how to become better thinkers and problem solvers in our medical education. Dr. Mustafa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is very exciting. It is. I listened to you interviewed on another podcast in the past on higher education, and I really liked the aspect that your coursework is really developed for medical students. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your current position and your course and what got you into this creative thinking process for medical students. My training is as a physician, so I went through all the years of medical training, internship, residency, fellowships, and I moved on to an academic and a clinical position at Cairo University Faculty of Medicine, where I taught fourth-year students in the ophthalmology department for many years as both a junior lecturer and then ultimately as an assistant professor. I was always curious and interested in ways and means in which we can be smarter and more efficient in tackling the huge amounts of information we need to synthesize and make meaning of as practitioners and as physicians and as human beings who are interacting with other human beings in a position of having this knowledge that we have to use to address their problems. And then I was exposed to teaching in another context, which was a liberal arts university. So I moved from relatively didactic, discipline-based academic space to a liberal arts space where the gears kind of changed and I started to think about how we think and what is the process of our thinking, where I was teaching the scientific thinking course, which focused on process and focused on not the product of what we want to learn, but how we want to learn it. And this got me really curious about how students learn, especially um, freshman students and early learners in higher education, where you're kind of forming habits, you're building foundations for how to piece together knowledge and how to solve complex problems and how to navigate a problem space. All of these things I became really curious about. And ultimately, we designed a course, which is a generic course that could be taught at any institution. It's a creative thinking and problem-solving course that talks about mindsets, that talks about barriers to creativity and creative problem-solving, that talks about things like academic grit, that talks about all sorts of mindsets and behaviors and attitudes that learners don't really learn about in K-12 education. They definitely didn't learn about it at the institution where I was enrolled in and where I ultimately ended up teaching. I got really curious about that. And uh, we were asked to design a course for freshmen and we designed that course and we ran it and it's been running since 2014 and it's evolved to kind of morph into a different course every year. We keep adding on modules and we keep adding on different techniques and ultimately introducing uh, design thinking the last few years. It's been a roller coaster, but it's been very insightful. And I think a lot of our students change a lot by the end of the course. So they come in with a certain understanding that, you know, creativity can't be taught. You're either creative or you're not. There's just one way of solving problems. They actually change the way they think about problems and 
hopefully they go on to apply this to their disciplines. I think that's pretty common in other institutes too, especially if you're not learning these types of skills in K through 12 or maybe even in undergrad, and then you're expected to already know them by the time you get to medical school. It's like, where is this transition point? How are we supposed to learn these types of skills? I think there's a misconception or an assumption on the part of educators in the higher education space that students come in with these thinking skills, that they have learned them, quote unquote, learn them by studying the sciences, by learning about language arts, by studying history and all these things. But I think that students don't learn how to make connections between the different topics. They may not necessarily learn how to navigate and how to think in different ways. For example, things like divergent and convergent thinking, things like iterative thinking, parallel thinking, these different modes of thinking. It's not something we're born with. We have to learn how to think in these various ways. So this is something that I think we all as educators maybe take for granted. And it's a lot of work to help students identify the gaps in the way they learn and give them a toolkit and give them a roadmap or a guide in which to start navigating this new way of learning, especially when they're in a space where there's a huge amount of knowledge, there's a content overload. And the last thing on their minds is how can I think better? It's just how can I get through all this information? Completely agree. I've heard a similar metaphor before. It's like learning to be an auto mechanic by going to a car show. It's just sort of expected that you know this or that, but uh, without really exploring how you would have learned it in this process. And in the case of medical students, that'd probably be undergrad and previous educational environments. I really like what you said about focusing on the process and not the product. And especially with your creative thinking course, there must be some really great strategies that students might be able to start implementing now. How would you recommend they start doing this? Or what are some things to look out for? I personally learned a lot about how to reflect on my own learning style, my own mode of learning, my own mode of thinking by experiencing design thinking. In the last few years, I've been exploring design thinking, which is a human-centered approach to problem solving, and it involves really understanding the space in which a problem lies. So, for example, if you are in a large hospital and you have a problem in, you know, getting enough people to donate blood and you have shortages in blood donations, how can you solve that problem by understanding why the problem is happening by going to the users. It may be something as simple as a fear of blood donation. It may be something as simple as access. People don't, it's not convenient for them. So when you learn how to understand where the problem lies and who are the stakeholders, who are the users, who are the people that can actually contribute to solving the problems, it's not you. You are not going to solve the problem on your own. And when I started learning about design thinking, I realized that a lot of the steps of design thinking, things like understanding a problem, defining what the problem really is after having understood the problem at a very deep level, thinking in a divergent mode, thinking of all the possibilities, which is something very similar to what medical doctors do in differential diagnosis, a divergent mode of thinking, and finally, zooming in on what the solution most likely is, so convergent thinking. And finally, iterative thinking, so the ability to move back and forth between different modes of thinking, to be able to think in a divergent way and then to zoom in in a convergent way and then to move back to the divergent mode without losing track of where you are in the problem-solving space. And this is something I learned through learning and teaching design thinking. And I think it's very valuable for medical students to 
look at modes of thinking to be able to think in a fact-based analytical way and then to think in an evaluative way and then to think in a divergent way that has uh, multiple possibilities, even if they're not the most likely cause of the problem, but to be able to just critically exclude them after having thought about them in the first place. So divergent thinking, I think, is very important. And I think for me, it was intuitive by having passed through the process of learning in a medical school. Most medical students can think in this way, but having a name for this type of thinking to be able to identify it and say, you know, this is how I want to think. I want to move through these modes of thinking. I want to look at a problem in a very sort of iterative yet structured way so that I can move through it efficiently. I think this is very useful for students. I think that's a big failure in the current system is if you don't have the vocabulary, you don't know what you're doing right, what you're doing wrong, how to compare it to other people. So I don't believe I've heard of the term design thinking prior to hearing a past interview from you. So even with a lot of my studies in this type of learning how to learn material and accelerated learning and and all of these educational topics, this is still something pretty new to me. So for a student that's not learning these types of things and for professors that have no experience in this, were never taught this, you can definitely see where there are huge gaps that uh, are tools that students are missing out on, basically. Definitely in a field like public health, for example, the impact of something like design thinking mindsets and toolkits is immense because you're working in spaces where humans are interacting with disease and with society and with the environment. It's an ecosystem. And in order to understand an ecosystem, you have to be able to see things like stakeholders and who's involved. It's not just the disease. It's the disease within a community. I mean, public health comes to mind as something in which design thinking can be very powerful. The problem with medical studies is that you need to have the content. You need to be able to master content, but you also need to be able to synthesize that content in a meaningful way. And design thinking can really help with that. For students, let's say currently in their first year or two of medical studies and probably get the most use out of this learning it early, are there certain organizational structures they should look at first? Like Maybe another way to phrase it is, how are the modules for your critical thinking course set up to give them sort of an outline of what to expect? Our creative thinking and problem solving course is basically an introductory module that talks about what creativity actually is from a neuroscience perspective, from a psychology perspective, from just a layman's perspective. What is their understanding of being a creative thinker, of being an innovative thinker and the differences between those two things? And then we talk about barriers to creativity and how we ourselves tend to judge our ideas more critically than perhaps others would judge our own ideas. And we talk a lot about things like deferring judgment, behaviors of, I would say, people who are innately creative, because we are all innately creative. But over time, these behaviors start to dampen as we become, you know, put into different molds, especially in K-12 education in some settings. Our country, for example, we have very conventional K-12 education. Um, So for first year and second year students, I would say to resist the urge to just simply memorize information and regurgitate it on an exam paper, but to try and make meaning of how this knowledge can connect to other areas of their studies. The problem with medical studies, at least in my experience, is that years ago there were silos of the disciplines or the sub-specialties within medicine. Now there's a more integrative approach to studying medicine in which you study disease from different perspectives, the physiology, the anatomy, the biochemistry of the disease 
And that helps students understand things at a deeper level because they can make meaning of it. But if they're just studying pure anatomy, pure biochemistry, pure physiology, it's very difficult to make those connections. So first and second year students, I would say to try and seek out these connections, even if it's at a very simple level. And as you progress through your studies to try and continue making these connections. Okay. I know you have some thoughts about learning versus memory, and this is always a highly debated topic, it seems like, and as we cover a lot of memory techniques in this show, but we also cover a lot of learning techniques and cognitive psychology of learning. Where do you stand on when memory should be maybe used a little bit more versus when everything should be thought of in a more comprehensive manner? I'll speak from personal experience and also experiences of what I've seen with the students that I've worked with. Memory serves as kind of the foundation for the pillars of knowledge that you build. So if you don't have that foundational knowledge, it's very difficult to build something that's strong and that can persist and that can continue and sustain through your career. So these are solid memories. These are long-term memories. But the learning process, for example, I find a tool such as mind mapping or concept mapping very, very useful because it helps you visually recognize information and place it in your mind in a sense that seeks connections, and it becomes much easier to memorize information. I always recommend that students, for every topic, for every subject, for every chapter, they try and write it out, produce their own concept map, which is a visual representation of their understanding of the topic, and then add on to that the information that they need to know and they need to be able to recall in different assessments and at the same time in order to be able to build a solid understanding of the topic. So mind mapping is very powerful. Concept mapping, which is very, very similar, is very powerful because it allows you to visually represent your understanding of the topic, but it also gives you a quick way to revise and recall information instead of reading through, you know, 30 pages, you can look at two pages of something that's visually represented, whether it's a mind map or a hierarchical map or a cyclical map or algorithm of some sorts, like a yes, no, positive, negative kind of algorithm kind of thing. There are different ways of doing it, but I would advise, I mean, students as study skills or study techniques to look at mind mapping, concept mapping, algorithms, hierarchical maps. Uh, There's lots of online platforms for that, but pen and paper are just very powerful as well. You don't need to get too techie to be able to do something like that. Perfect. I think that perfectly coincides with a previous episode with Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath. He was also saying that you really need to have that foundational knowledge memorized first. So utilize memory strategies there, and then you can start to integrate everything afterwards. They did some problem-based learning education and found that without the memory there first, without the memorization there first, in a manner of speaking, that students weren't able to properly use that technique. So I'm glad to see that there's like good consistency between a lot of different philosophies and educational standards. So for another topic that I know you discuss is embracing failure and how useful that can be to the learning process. Can you delve into that a little bit more and what your thoughts are on it? I think it's very contextual. It also has a lot of cultural aspects to it. So there's a whole spectrum of cultures and contexts that accept failure to different degrees. So you have learning models in which failure is not acceptable at all. And then you have contexts in which students are 
opposed to experimentation, very minimal kind of test taking and assessment. I was born and raised in Canada and I never took an exam in primary school. There were no exams. For example, in Egypt, students take exams from grade one. So it depends on what kind of mindset you have towards assessment, which builds into students this idea that they need to get the right answer in order to succeed. Embracing failure is a little different. I personally encourage my students to stop at the moment in which they feel that they failed at something and to question and to ask themselves, you know, why this happened without judgment. And this is extremely difficult. It's not a natural process. Human beings are uncomfortable with failure and they're uncomfortable with ambiguity and they're uncomfortable with uncertainty. You have to train yourself and encourage students and often create experiences for them to experience failure in a safe space. So in a classroom where they can see other students failing at the same task and see how an instructor can coach them or facilitate the process so that they can succeed at what they previously failed at. Also things like apprenticeship, these are safe spaces. I mean, in surgical training, in medical training, internships and fellowships are spaces in which there's a very minimal margin for failure, but at the same time, you are learning things with the apprenticeship model, with the mentorship of someone more experienced than yourself, which gives you the safety in which if you are going to fail, there will be someone there to assist you in correcting this failure very quickly. So apprenticeship is a very powerful model as well. Mentorship is very important. But again, it's not natural. And once students start to accept the fact that there is no one solution to many of our problems, that you may not succeed the first time, that learning is iterative, that solving problems is a moving target, that the solutions we have today may not be the solutions we need for tomorrow. This in itself is a failure mindset because if you have a solution today and five years down the road, it no longer works, it has essentially failed. And this is something we have to learn to accept and embrace in a sense that it's just part of the circle of how we progress through our daily lives. But it is not easy. Students do not find it comfortable. They are often surprised when we talk about failure. There are several TED Talks. I mean, uh, Catherine Schutz on her, there's a TED Talk around failure being a human right, that every human being should have that kind of permission to fail before they succeed. So there are many, many instances and let's say approaches to how you can teach students to be comfortable with failure. But the best way I think is to create in the classroom a very safe space in which they can experience failure, but also experience success following that failure. And this is where you, as an educator, you need to craft these experiences and it's an art in a sense. And it It's trial and error. You may create a learning activity and it doesn't work and then you try another approach and it works. You may click for one group of students and the next group of students it doesn't work. So again, even as educators, we have to be comfortable with things not working the way we want them to work all the time. I couldn't agree more. It's funny that everyone is starting to mention failure in their own context, including another podcast that I've recorded about a dozen episodes for, haven't released it yet. I'm not sure if it'll be out by the time this releases, called the One Minute Preceptor Podcast. And every physician preceptor I've had on there has basically stated something similar, that admitting failure is such a a systemic problem in medicine that it's just from the ground up, from the education to residency to an attending, it's very difficult to get into that habit. And there 
are a lot of potential consequences from admitting to the wrong people or at the wrong time. I guess it's a really complicated issue, but being able to do that in a safe environment, in a mentorship type environment, or some sort of crafted experience, as you described, especially when it comes to critical thinking, which people are maybe innately a little unsure about or, or fear not being as creative as someone else in the class, could be extremely beneficial in the long run. Okay, so from that, there is also the topic of self-directed learning that I've heard a lot of mixed reviews about too, and I think it really heavily depends on the type of training that goes into it to some degree or the type of environment the student's in. But that's something that's becoming more and more prominent as students are really learning more outside of the classroom than they are inside in many institutions. So what are your thoughts about the best way to set up some sort of self-directed learning schedule or behavior? I think you're referring, okay, self-directed learning as in self-paced, competency-based kinds of learning experiences outside the regular classroom, the regular facilitated kind of learning experience. And if I understand correctly, that's what you mean? Correct. Yes. It's really guiding your own education, whether your self-studies, what are you going to do when you get home, watch this lecture, do this practice test. I guess it varies based on the student and their preferred study methods, but generally those that are done outside of the normal scheduled curriculum. Well, a lot of programs now are including a blended form of learning in which students are not only learning you know, face-to-face in the classroom, but they're learning online and they're learning in communities online. They're learning from each other online, but they're also learning in a self-paced or a self-directed format, whether through MOOCs, so massive online open courses, or through online courses that are just part of what their program offers. The challenge here is motivation, of course. So not all students are motivated enough to complete self-directed or self-paced learning modules. The design of these self-paced modules is critical so that the motivation is built in to the assessments that's built into the engagement and the interactivity with the content because for self-paced modules, usually there may not be a, a learning community. You may be learning independently and motivation is a big challenge there. But if the content is rich enough and if the topic is selected in a way that the student feels the benefit of learning this outside the regular curriculum, I think students will do it. For example, there are a lot of open educational resources that students flock to in the tens of thousands, whether it's edX or Coursera or Udemy or you know Microsoft, IBM, all sorts of offerings, whether they're from educational institutions or from corporate entities or whatever. I personally have learned a lot from open educational self-paced modules, whether self-directed or in a community of learners. So I think motivation is very important. The topic that they want to learn about, there are certain topics that really are best taught in face-to-face environment, and there are topics that lend themselves to self-paced learning. The design of the self-paced module is very important, making sure that there are sort of touch points along the learning where students can check their understanding and make sure that by the end of the self-paced module, the knowledge and the skills and perhaps even attitudes that they've gained have been assessed in a way that the student leaves the self-paced module having gained the learning at the same level that they would have gained it if they were taking it in a classroom and sometimes even at a higher level. 
So design, I mean, a good quality self-paced module can be huge value to students who are motivated enough to learn independently. Great. I love MOOCs too. I used to take some all the time before in undergrad. That was a good way to supplement the coursework I was taking. And even during medical school, to some degree, if I didn't feel like I was adequately getting the information I needed or absorbing it based on the way the instructor was teaching it, I would go and look for MOOC or just some online YouTube videos or something to help supplement the material and felt like that was useful at the time anyway. I think also, I mean, instructors and professors can create, you know, resources. So I always give my students, you know, here's a list of podcasts, here's a list of MOOCs you may want to take, here's some content from an open educational resource that I draw from a course that I've attended online. There's a lot of open educational resources out there, Creative Commons material that you can include in your courses for students that have that desire to learn beyond the class and to learn independently or even to replace. There are students who would prefer to learn independently than have to come in and sit in a lecture hall with 300 other students and they may learn even better independently. So some faculty will tell their students, you know, you can do this instead. So it varies, but I think that as educators, we need to identify that our students now are learning in different ways than the way we learned in medical school. So I was in medical school over 20 years ago. Medical students today are very, very different. And I think they learn in different ways. Podcast, for example, I uh, most of what I learn as a lifelong learner, I learn online or I learn from a podcast. I read books. I still read books, but learning through listening and learning through interacting with content online can be very powerful as well. And we have to recognize that it's okay for our students to learn that way. Getting the variation of instruction from different instructors, whether it be on podcasts or other materials, can be very useful for students. So completely agree. I really get a lot of material these days from other podcasts and also through the local library because they now have all of their technology updated. So all of the audiobooks can be streamed directly to your phone. So a lot of supplemental resources that can give variations of material to students and explain things in different ways. So some might be more productive for them. Now, as we're coming close to the end of the episode here, I generally finish with a segment called Just Three Wishes. So are you ready to make three wishes? Yes, I am. All right, perfect. So the first one is, is there anything you wish you could remember better? I wish I didn't have to make to-do lists. So I tend to need to multitask, but having the ability to remember what I need to do means I need to create a to-do list. I would love to find a way to streamline my work process in a way that is simple, is easy to remember, and it will also alleviate anxiety about trying to remember what you need to do. Yeah, streamlining processes, always beneficial. There's so many productivity hacks and apps and things out there, but sometimes finding the right one for the right tool can be time-consuming. I haven't found one yet. <laughs> If there's one thing that you could change in education, what would it be? Well, there are many things I'd like to change about education. But one thing that I think could possibly perhaps change the landscape or change the way we design higher education experiences is challenge-based learning. To take a challenge, so, you know, poverty or water quality or climate change, and to use that as a centerpiece of 
everything a student learns. So to use challenge-based learning, to use problem-based learning, and to move away from solution-oriented thinking, which kind of distracts us from learning how to learn because students are so focused on finding that right answer that they move quickly through the problem space and move immediately into the solution space because that's what they've been trained to do, find the right answer. So I would love to see an educational system that doesn't reward for a product, that rewards for process, that rewards for, you know, coming up with original ways of thinking about a problem and doesn't rely on a right answer. It sounds sort of like how some MBA programs will have you create a fictitious company and work on that project throughout your education so you can really see the whole process and think about it as you're learning the material. Mm -hmm. There are also universities now that, you know, their last, the final year or the final two years are just basically, you know, here's a problem. Go and explore this problem and come up with a prototype idea for how to address it. Uh, You know, you can spend a whole semester on that or spend a whole year on that. And all you get is, you know, here's a problem, a very vague, ambiguous. And you have to, as a student, you have to unravel and kind of dissect the problem at all its levels and involve all the stakeholders and involve the whole ecosystem around the problem and come up with a unique, innovative solution. And I think this is how we're going to solve our problems in the future because the way we're solving them now is not working. Agreed. I really love the sound of that. It sounds like a fun project. For the last question, if there's one thing you could change in medicine, what would it be? The pressure of content acquisition. I think there's a huge amount of pressure on students to memorize, at least in our context, to recall information and not stop for a moment and make meaning of what this information could contribute to their learning process. I think also what's perhaps missing a little bit in our medical education is the role of physicians as change agents. So in the bigger picture of healthcare and the bigger picture of health in general, the bigger picture of disease control, not all physicians think about the big picture because we become so focused on our one subspecialty and we want to excel at it. And sometimes, you know, other things fall off the the kind of priority list. And it's always important for us to constantly remind students that it's much bigger than just your discipline. Great points. Great points. Are there any parting thoughts you have for students? I would say it's a personal reflection. I did kind of change my career over the years. So I moved from a medical student to a ophthalmic surgeon, to a medical ophthalmologist, to a teacher, to an administrator in a university. It's okay to morph into different roles within your career. And it's also very important to always have time for your hobbies, because I think the stereotype of a medical student is someone who's just basically focusing on their career and their studies. And I think it's really important to have space for other things and to learn about other things and to be a lifelong learner. It's hard. It's not easy to make that balance. But I, for one, as I've grown older, I've found that it's really, really important to have time for other things in addition to your career. I think that would be my advice. Great. Yeah. Personal time is extremely important just for your mental sanity. So (laughs) I like it. If the audience wanted to reach out to you or maybe get some information on your course or similar types of materials, where can they go about doing that? 
you can visit my LinkedIn page or you can email me directly. I'm happy to have you add my email on the podcast. Our course is the syllabus is public. I can also post a link to our syllabus on your website. They're happy for people to take a look at that. And yeah, please feel free to reach out. I'm currently at the American University in Cairo, the Center for Learning and Teaching. And we do a lot of outreach and we collaborate on many, many levels in the region and internationally. So I'm happy to connect. Great. Yeah, we'll definitely add all of those links into the show notes so the audience can find that and click on it. And hopefully they will will check out some of the materials because I think it's very useful, especially earlier on in your education, but even later on can always benefit from better creative thinking and problem solving skills. So Dr. Hoda Mustafa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Chase. It's been fun. And I look forward to perhaps hearing back from some of the people who are in the audience.